With thanks to Baileys, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives. All while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Yomi Adegake, your new host for season three of the Women's Prize podcast. We have a phenomenal lineup of guests for 2021 and I guarantee you will be taking away plenty of reading recommendations. Each bookshelf episode, we ask an inspiring woman to share the story of her life through five different books by women. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Bookshelfie. I'm Yomi Adegoke and I'm absolutely thrilled to be joining you as your new host for Series 3. Well, I'll be lucky enough to be interviewing some incredible women about the work of other incredible women. Let me start by reminding you that this year's long list is out and the 16 brilliant authors and their books can all be found on our website, womensprizeforfiction.co.uk. We are still practicing safe social distancing, and this podcast is being recorded remotely. Today's guest is author, journalist, and broadcaster Elizabeth Day. Elizabeth is the author of six books spanning fiction and nonfiction, and her critically acclaimed hit podcast, How to Fail, celebrates the things that all went wrong. Each episode, she speaks to people at the top of their game about their failures, which were an essential part of their journey to success. Ironically, the podcast success landed her a book deal and her latest title, Philosophy, a handbook for when things go wrong, brings together all her knowledge on this topic and distills it into seven key principles to guide us through life's rough patches. Elizabeth is also one of the judges for this year's Women's Prize for Fiction and also one of my favourite people that is part of the fourth estate roster. She's my label mate. (laughs) Yay! I'm so delighted to be here. I'm so honoured to be your first guest. I know. Oh no, it feels very, very fitting. I mean, you are just such a darling. You are genuinely one of my faves. I mean, over lockdown, I think, God, was it first, second, third? Who knows? When you sent me a copy of Philosophy, which was just so thoughtfully packed with all these like little goodies and self care mm. things, it truly was the highlight of that horrendous period. So You're thank so you very much. Lovely. And can I just say, I promise this won't be a total gush fest, but it has been so <laughs> amazing watching your star. Sore and sore and sore. I feel so. Um, I know it's like my pride is completely misplaced because it's not like I've got anything to do with it. I'm not related to you. But I'm just so proud of you. And it's a really wonderful thing to see when someone who has genuine talent and works really hard gets what they deserve. So I just wanted to say oh, that. No, thank you so much. No, I really, really appreciate that. Because again, to try and stop this from being a total gush fest, <laughs> but it will be. I actually remember the first time that I met you, which was like, Me too. weirdly in a bookstore or something. I think we're like outside like a bookshop or something. In yeah, Central. It, was, it was on Tottenham Court Road. Yes. And you and Elizabeth were being taken around by our mutual publicist, amazing <laughs> Naomi, who works for the state. And you were Incredible. doing book signings for Slay in Your Lane. And I just had happened to be walking past it's completely random and I had heard so much about you and so much about that book and then it was just just a, a moment of pure serendipity that yeah, I feel like really was meant was. to be yeah absolutely and you were so friendly and lovely and god we were so young at that time we were like 26 I think or something I felt like I was a lot younger than I am now yeah it was a, it was a while ago and I remember being really wide-eyed and like scared and you were just super lovely and super oh, friendly listen, so. I feel like we've all aged 10 years in the last year <laughs> like mentally I'm like how old was I then I'm certainly like 53 now so wow <laughs> quite the jump but yeah thank you so much for your time today Elizabeth I cannot Gosh, wait to pick your brain and also I mean obviously the fact that you are one of the judges for the women's prize um I know that you are a big reader and gosh I'm just wondering how I'm wondering how how much you manage to read and whether lockdown has given you the opportunity to read more than normally it's a great question because you say I'm a big reader I've become a bigger reader because I've got the immense honour of being a Women's Prize judge, which I'm thrilled about. And I also have just got a new job as one of the co-presenters of Open yes. Book on Radio Congrats, which is super exciting. Yeah. Thank you. And at the end of last year, this amazing opportunity basically came out of nowhere to, to be one of the presenters for the Sky Arts Book Club, along with the fantastic Andy Oliver. Anyway, during that time, 
I was honestly, I was reading four books a week. Like that's what I had to get through. And it reminded me of university essay crises. And it almost got to the point, almost, Yummy, where I was like, I'm just, I'm really worried that I'm going to stop enjoying reading. And then things eased off a bit and uh, Sky Arts, like that came to the end of its run. And then the third lockdown was announced. And whilst I was really dispirited that there was another lockdown, I was like, thank goodness, (laughs) I now get every single evening and morning to read. And I got into this really beautiful routine where I would wake up at eight. I'm incredibly lucky in that respect that I don't have Mm. to get up for children or homeschooling. Um, I woke up at eight and I would take like a women's prize submission book or something I had to read for open book back to bed with me and I would read for an hour just uninterrupted and Mm. I don't think I've done that since I was a teenager and it's really really helped being able to read at points during the day where normally I'd be rushing to get the tube or I'd be rushing Mm. to meet someone in a bar and so um, I've rediscovered the pleasure of that. I really have. Um, And also I should just say, it's fine if you haven't, because I think there's also this like whole dialogue around using lockdown to improve yourself and to read all those forgotten classics that you've never got around to. And actually that can feel like too much pressure. And so I think you should only read if you really feel drawn to it. But I have to say, it's a lovely way to start the day. Oh, it sounds absolutely incredible. And in terms of being productive as well, because I'm like all this spare time that you've had and you're actually utilizing, I've literally spent all of it being like, wow, now I can watch even more Netflix series. And I've been (laughs) saying, I'm going to use this. I'm going to use my new found um, role as a host of the podcast to ensure that I actually read far more than I do I do read but it's more that I start books and very rarely actually manage to make it to the end so I'm interested in you know whether what your thoughts are on are on rather abandoning books um and whether you do ever fail to finish them first of all I want to say that so much stuff on Netflix is the modern version of the novel so actually what you're (laughs) doing watching box sets especially if they're well crafted and well written is you're getting creative stimulation that way. So don't feel bad about that. And secondly, Thank you. I, you needed that. <laughs> I absolutely abandon books. And I think it's one of those things that I've got less tolerant of the older I've got and the more books I've written myself. I feel if I haven't engaged with a book within the first 50 to 100 pages, the chances mm-hmm. are that book isn't for me. And I just feel that a really brilliant book should engage me as a reader from the off and I don't mind like sitting with uncertainty for a chapter or so but I think once you've got to 100 pages there are just so many other books out there that I haven't yet read that Mm. I want to get on to so it's something that I never used to do I always felt really guilty about it in the same way that I always used to feel really guilty about giving books away but then I just realized like I'd need to live in a mansion, like in in Versailles, Mm. to accommodate all the books I've read (laughs) in my life and want to keep. Um, But now I just, I'm trying actively to sort of be kinder to myself and feel less guilty about things that I don't need to feel guilty about. And that is definitely one of them. I think that's very, very sound and sage advice. Um, In terms of judging the Women's Prize this year, how are you feeling about the task ahead? I know you said that you feel like it's an honour. You must be very excited. Super excited. I was just thrilled when they announced the judges because I don't know if you know this, but we don't find out who the other judges are until like two weeks before the official announcement. I knew that Bernadine Evaristo was going to be the chair and that was a major part of saying yes. I've been (laughs) asked before, which again has been an incredible honour, but I just haven't had time before. And this year I was like, oh my gosh, it's going to be Bernadine. Yes, uh, I will make time. And then I found out who the other judges were and we're such a great mix. Nezri Malik, who is a dear friend of mine anyway, um, is such an incredible mind. She's, I think, one of the best columnists working in Britain today there's Vic Hope who is super smart this like young DJ who like comes with such fresh intelligence Mm. there's Sarah Jane Mee who's a news anchor on Sky who is reading books around like nursing her newborn baby Um, Mm. and I just think that we all come from from different parts of a cultural experience and I think that we're going to come up hopefully with a really great long list so I, I was a bit overwhelmed by the reading task but um I'm quite a nerd and so I'm quite conscientious and so I kind of started it 
earlier than I think some others have. And I've only now got one book left of all my submissions to read. And I've honestly discovered some amazing authors who I wasn't familiar with, some first time novelists who have blown me away and books that I hadn't realized until I came to be a judge how much I value originality it doesn't have to be originality of plot because as is famously said there are no real original plots Mm. and it doesn't really have to be originality of language like writing without any punctuation but there has to be something about a book that feels fresh and and Mm. urgent for me to want to read it that speaks to the now and honestly there have been I cannot wait to talk about them. One of the frustrations has been that I haven't been able to post or share about any of these incredible novels I've been reading because I've got to be, you know, ethical, blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's one of the frustrations. So I can't wait, as you can probably tell, just to be able to talk about <laughs> I can later. literally hear it. <laughs> You're making me really excited because I get to read them too. I get to read the long list for the podcast. So I'm like, ah, yeah, oh. I've got a lot to look forward to. So your first book for Bookshelfy is The Ordinary Princess by M.M.K. Can you tell me a little bit about this book? Yes. So this is probably one of the most influential books of my childhood. I would also put up there When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit by Judith Kerr, who wrote the Mog books and The mm-hmm. Tiger Who Came to Tea. And and the re- I was really drawn to the Second World War because I grew up in Northern Ireland and mm-hmm. we moved there when I was four and it was 1982 and it was a time of conflict and it was essentially a war zone. So I had a whole like passion for reading about other war zone children's books, but I thought that might make me sound a bit weird and dark to choose that. But the other children's book that massively had an impact on me was The Ordinary Princess. And I think I was about eight when I first read it and it's a subversion of the traditional fairy story. It's about a princess called Ameth- Amethyst. She's called Amy for short. And she's got a kind of uh, a grumpy fairy godmother called brilliantly Crostacea, who gives her at her christening the gift of ordinariness. So Princess Amy, unlike her older sisters, grows up with mousy hair. She's freckled and plain. She prefers to play in the woods and be with animals than go around being like royal in all her finery. She doesn't want to go to official banquets. Um, she befriends a crow and a squirrel. And she spends a lot of the time in the forest, essentially just being her true authentic self. Mm. And while she's in the forest, she meets a young man who also appears to be ordinary, but all is not as it seems. And it, And it's, I just loved it because... I was a child who wasn't very cool, <laughs> spent a lot of time in the countryside in kind of scrappy corduroy trousers, was, was a massive reader even then, um, spent a lot of time in my imagination, loved animals, and I didn't really fit in, especially not when I went to secondary school, and especially not in Northern Ireland speaking with the English accent that I speak with. Mm-hmm. And something about Princess Amy being free enough to to be and fulfill the truest expression of herself in all of her ordinariness was a really beautiful thing. And and I felt very close to that character. Oh God, that's so touching. It's really sweet. (laughs) It's one of those books I'm I'm probably slightly too old for, but like genuinely really does speak to me in terms of the plot. It feels slightly ahead of its time. Yeah. And it's also one that I don't think many people know about. And I I think never heard of it. Yeah. I think I was given it actually, ironically enough, by a godmother. Um, And I think the other thing that I like about it is that it teaches us empathy for other kinds of lives. And that, as you know, Yomi, has become a kind of lifelong preoccupation of mine, that Mm. that ability to sort of go beneath the surface and realise that even if someone appears to be living a successful life and the kind of aspirational life, actually, there's a lot more going on beneath the surface. Absolutely. And we're going to be touching on that um, quite soon, excitingly. Why would you say it affected you so much? And more importantly, do you think you were aware of the effect that um, this book was having on you? Because I think when I said it was sort of ahead of its time, I feel like we are now sort of through Disney princesses, seeing this real subversion of um, what the traditional fairy stories are. And this definitely sounds like it kind of predates that in quite an interesting way. So I'm interested in whether you're aware of how kind of subversive it was and and um, what effect it was having on you and your sense of self-esteem as a child. Yeah, that's such a such a great question. I was aware of something at the time. Mm -hmm. I was aware instinctively that this book spoke to me, but it's only in retrospect that I realise 
I was, I wasn't exactly a tomboy, but I liked spending a lot of time doing my own things and with animals in, in kind of nature. And I didn't find it that easy to make friends with other children. And so I, I found a lot of friends in the pages of books like this, but you're right that there weren't that many at that time. So this really spoke to me on, on that level, as did another book called My Naughty Little Sister. I can't remember who wrote it, um, which is it's the Ron Seal approach to titling. It does exactly what it says on the tin. Um, it was all about this like, naughty, mischievous little sister. And I think that those kind of books spoke to a feeling I had of not finding it easy to fit in and being slightly misunderstood sometimes. So it's not that I was naughty. Um, it's not that I was stubborn. It's not that I was weird. There was just like a lot going on inside my head. Um, and I found it, yeah, like Princess Amy, I just really enjoyed spending time with animals because I didn't feel judged by them. God, I sound so sad. <laughs> I sound like, like a protagonist in like an upcoming <laughs> Pixar movie for sure. I do. I do. I mean, there was lots of happiness as well, but I think it's that thing. I think it's about moving to Northern Ireland to be, to be completely honest. Like I went from sounding like everyone else and being close to my extended family to at the age of four, uh, living somewhere where there were routine bomb scares and bombs going off and pe- knee cappings mm. and scary men in balaclavas marching in the streets and where to speak with an English accent like mine was to mark you out in certain quarters as an occupier. And so that was really discombobulating. And that's why I looked for a sense of safety and self-worth in books. So you're right. I think it probably was quite good for my self-esteem. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. So onto your second book for Bookshelfie, which is The Cazalet. I hope I've said that correctly. Yeah. Yes, I have. Okay, yes, thank God. So, <laughs> the Cazalet Chronicles by Elizabeth Jane Howard. What is this book about? Oh, well, it's at the time I read it, it was a quartet. And then she added another book shortly before she died. Elizabeth Jane Howard is a novelist who I think is still extremely underrated. And I think it's partly because she was writing at a time when women were pigeonholed as authors of domestic dramas. And mm-hmm. she was married for a while to Kingsley Amis, whose career massively overshadowed her own. And for many years, she was basically his kind of domesticated wife who would boil him eggs and also raise his children, including Martin Amis, famously, who credits her with his love of English literature. Um, And so her career was massively overshadowed. And these books I overlooked because in the 90s, they were published with terrible covers, with like twee watercolour painting covers in pastels. And loads of people at school were reading them, but I sort of disdained them. And it was only when I joined The Observer at the age of 29 and I befriended um, this wonderful woman called Edie, who was the editor's secretary, and she's an inveterate reader. And she was like, you have to read them. Put aside your prejudice and read them. And they are an epic sweep of novels that tell the story of a single family, the Cazalets, during and after the Second World War in Sussex in England. And what Elizabeth Jane Howard does with these books is she tells social history without you realising that's what's happening. And you are so invested in her characters and who they are to each other and themselves that it is the most wonderful comfort read. And it's also great literature. And when it came to writing my first book, I, you know, I'm completely untrained. I've never done a creative writing course, but it's actually quite difficult when you're writing your first novel to understand what to do with tenses and and shifts in perspective. Mm-hmm. And I went back to Elizabeth Jane Howard to the Cassock Chronicles to work out how she'd done it because she shifts sometimes in the space of a paragraph from kind of one person's perspective to another. And it it never felt clunky. I never realized that that was what she was doing. It's, it seems effortless. And I just love these books so, so much. As you can probably tell, I will never stop banging the drum for them. So that is why I've chosen them. And you you mentioned um, going back to this book in particular for, I guess, technical guidance in terms of writing, which I think 
we don't necessarily talk enough about in, as writers. Yeah. You know, people discuss being possessed by the pen, essentially, and, you know, things just <laughs> pouring out of them. And, you know, you just, you know, you just sort of word vomit these beautiful sentences. But there is, it's a real craft and there is a lot of technicality to it that I think often goes um, ignored. What was it like for you when you were writing that first book and, you know, that joyous experience of securing your first book deal? It, it's so true that, what you said about the, the kind of craft of writing. And I also think it's true of podcasts. Like there's this sense that you can just record something in your living room and then just put it out there and it will be a hit podcast. Mm-hmm. Like, no, actually quite a lot of work goes into it. And, <laughs> and I've never been someone who like just everything flows from the pen and it's like I've been overtaken by the creative muse. Like it's a lot <laughs> of work to write a book. So my first novel, I always knew that I wanted to write books And I had several false starts where I was just trying too hard. I was trying too hard to write like the authors I admired, Mm -hmm. or I was trying too hard to write a completely fantastical plot. And in the end, I just started writing something almost for myself. I didn't have any expectation of it. And it was about a woman who turned up at the bedside of her husband who was in a coma. And she, she, through the course of the book, you realize that their marriage, although it seemed happy, was deeply dysfunctional and various things things happen along the way. And um, at the time I was working at The Observer, reading Elizabeth Jane Howard, an agent contacted me wanting me to write nonfiction. And that quite often happens with journalists. Mm -hmm. And we met up and I liked her and I said, but I don't want to write nonfiction. I want to write fiction. I've got these 5,000 words. And I sent them to her and she liked them. And she said, carry on and write the book and then we'll send it out to publishers. And that gave me permission in a way to continue doing it without feeling stupid and it was very important for me to have an objective sounding board without having to talk to friends and family about it because I didn't want to embarrass myself by talking about this novel that I was writing that might never see the light of day and so uh, Jessica who was my then agent and I um, worked on it together and I wrote the whole thing and then it got sent out to publishers And um, it got rejected by the first five publishers that she sent it to. And and Jessica used to forward me the rejection emails just word for word. She just forwarded the whole email. Now that is a really hard thing. And I still remember them. And I still remember the editors who rejected rejected that book. And then I got an amazing email from a, a wonderful editor at Bloomsbury who basically heard that it was doing the rounds, asked to see it. And that was Helen who is my beloved editor and yours, Yomi. And till this day, she has edited every single book of mine. And that's how I got a book deal. So it was was work because I had to write the whole book on spec. Um, And that's why I really hate writing proposals now because I've never really... (laughs) Never really done it. I just wrote the book. I'd much rather do that. But yeah, that's that's how it happened. Wow. Oh my gosh. Well, just you know, on a side note to Helen's impeccable taste. Like very, very I mean, when you said Helen, I kind of was like, wait, is this our same Helen? Like, wow. Yes. That's, that's incredible. Um, but yeah, it's such it's such an interesting story, and I think a super inspiring one because obviously, um, you know, you speak so eloquently about failure and imposter syndrome mm-hmm. and um, you know obviously especially on social media it can appear that as many of us you know sort of arrive fully formed at the coast like um venus and everything's yes. perfectly <laughs> sorted out and immaculate when you know there's a lot that we don't see so i'm interested in um you know do you think that your imposter syndrome is what sort of led you to be interested in conversations around failure and you know exploring the power that lies within our sort of um flaws mm. and imperfections definitely i mean imposter syndrome and feeling like you don't fit in I suppose I see now us have so much in common um and so I spent a lot of my life kind of pretending to be okay and part of the way that I did that was to to try and meet everyone else's expectations or hopes of me which is another way of saying people pleasing. But I, I sometimes think that it sounds like a humble brag when I say, oh, I was such a people pleaser. I'm just such a great person. And I'm not saying that at all. I was actually, I didn't know who I was because I was constantly outsourcing my sense of self to other people's opinions of me. And it was during this time that I started carving out a career as a journalist. 
And as part of that career, as you know, because you do such brilliant interviews, you're, you're sent to profile incredibly, quote unquote, successful people who appear to have it all, you know, shiny celebrities who are utterly stunning and uh, have won Oscars or Booker Prizes. or And so I was being thrust into an environment where all the stories I was telling were about success mm. and and there was a there was a real dissonance there for me and I got quite frustrated with that kind of interview and very often I'd be interviewing someone and I go off we'd go off on a tangent and they'd tell me something really revealing personally I don't know about their family or their upbringing and those bits were always the bits I found most interesting Mm -hmm. the bits where they they weren't um on message where they weren't in promotion mode where they were actually talking to me on a, on a very human level and they were the bits that always got cut out when I would write up the interview because there's a word count pressure and you know you only editors only want you to talk about their film or their recent divorce anyway that really frustrated me and so it was a combination of those two things that drew me to the idea of talking specifically about flaws and vulnerability firstly because I think it's a shortcut to connection and secondly because I really wanted to make it clear to other people living their lives that all is not what it seems and we live in such an aspirational culture where we're constantly comparing our insides with other people's outsides Mm -hmm. that I think a lot of us can feel that we don't fit in or like imposters or that we're not good enough. And I just wanted to attack that whole notion. And so that's how How to Fail was born. Definitely something that I'm going to be probing you further on in a moment, because I mean, personally, I've just sat here making lots of mental notes. Like, (laughs) honestly, I think, I mean, especially for women, honestly, when it comes, I mean, I really loved your kind of re- framing of what people pleasing is because I do think so much of it does come down to just an innate misunderstanding or just no understanding of who you are um and yeah completely out the idea of outsourcing who you are and even I think to take it further like who you think you should be who you think you want to be um to others is huge that I mean I took an entire degree because I thought I should be a lawyer because uh, everyone else is a lawyer so I guess I'll do that yeah it's a very common thing and it's um something I think lots of us are still grappling with um even during a bloody pandemic when it's like if there's ever a time to give yourself a break (laughs) kind of now kind of now but it's difficult in a pandemic because there's so much more time although time also seems to go really quickly and slowly simultaneously that we're spending more at least I am spending more time scrolling through social media absolutely which is just exhausting sometimes it really is Star Wars Andor, streaming exclusively on Disney+. Plus. Cassian Andor. Empire's choking us. I need all the heroes I can get. From the creators of Rogue One. There is an organized rebel effort. Get a hunt started. Witness the beginning. This is what revolution looks like. Of rebellion. I'm tired of losing. Wouldn't you rather give it all to something real? Star Wars Andor, original series streaming September 21st, exclusively on Disney+. Plus. 18+, plus. subscription required. T's and C's apply. This podcast is made in partnership with Bailey's Irish Cream. Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Bailey's is the perfect adult treat, whether in coffee, over ice cream or paired with your favourite book. Enjoying the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast? Share the literary love and be part of the future of the Women's Prize Trust by making a one-off donation to support our important work as a charity. Donations of all sizes help us to continue empowering women, regardless of their age, race, nationality or background, to raise their voice and own their story. Search for Support the Women's Prize to find out more. Your third book for Bookshelfie is The Weather in the Streets by Rosamund Lemon. 
Could you tell me how you first came to find this book and what's it, what it's all about? So um, this is probably the most bookish anecdote ever in that I found this book when I was in Hay on Wye for the Hay Literary <laughs> Festival. And there's an amazing secondhand bookshop there that is almost like a cathedral for books. I can't remember what it's called. It's Rich, Richard something bookshop. I'll look it up. So I was in this secondhand bookshop in Hay on Wye and I happened across this book, The Weather in the Streets. And it was one of those old Virago classics with a green spine. Mm -hmm. And although I'd heard the name Rosamund Lehman, I'd never read her. And there was something about it. I just thought, oh, I'll give it a shot. I think I, you know, I sound very superficial because I I really do judge books by their cover. I think there was (laughs) clearly something about the cover that drew me in. And um, I would have been in my early 30s when I first read it. And um, it's actually the second it's a sequel to an earlier book she'd written called invitation to a waltz which is all about a 17 year old protagonist called olivia who um goes to her first ball and it is exactly as enticing as that sounds it's like a kind of modern day jane austen it's like quite thrilling to read and she meets um roly who she has a massive crush on um anyway weather in the streets fast forwards and the two of them reconnect but it's now olivia's in her 20s she's living a bohemian life in london and she ends up having an affair with this married man and it just struck me when i read it in my early 30s as an incredibly good read that spoke to very modern problems, um, infidelity, identity, womanhood. And it was published in 1936 and it was very famous at the time or infamous because it depicts a backstreet abortion, which for the time was ex- like an extraordinary thing for a female author to do. Um, I then put that book aside for a few years and I returned to it because I was asked on to another podcast, which was all about rediscovering lost classics. And I talked about The Weather in the Streets and I reread it. And when I reread it, I had been through a divorce, fertility issues and my first miscarriage. I reread it again and I was blown away just again with the, with the like accuracy and clarity and lyricism of Rosamund Lehman's language, it seemed to be speaking directly to me and to my experience, mm. even though I was reading it in the mid 2000s. Um, mm. And so I think there was something about that that I found very compelling. And when I reread it, I also did that thing that we were talking about earlier, where I really noticed the craft mm. that she had put into it. And she did things like shift perspective from I to she. So she would sometimes talk about Olivia in the first person and sometimes in the third. And so that's a very modernist thing to do. And yet I hadn't noticed it the first time around because it was such a good story. And I think that for me is the definition of a really great book where you can meld art and craft with a brilliant plot and totally convincing characterization so that essentially you never forget your duty to tell a great story. And you've spoken you know, about you were going through a divorce, you had experienced fertility issues, you'd had a miscarriage. And, you know, I think it's, it just speaks to the power of books that, you know, you were able to read this book and, and identify with it, feel that it was speaking directly to you. It's something that, I mean, when I do read an incredible book, I feel that, you know, regardless of what what world it's set in or um, how, you know, relatable it is to me. I feel that it is truly speaking to me. I'm interested in how books have helped you process and cope with these experiences that are so um, specific and 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 difficult, and and often can be portrayed and depicted in a way not just in literature, but I'd say even on television that aren't necessarily accurate or, or don't necessarily speak to the experience. So, how have books um, helped you through those experiences? It's just another really such a good question, Yomi. I don't seek out books by subject matter. I don't seek out novels by subject matter. So if I were going through a really tough time, I don't think, I'm not the kind of person who'd be like, I need to read a novel that is about this to help me sort my feelings out. I am someone who is always reading a book. And when I'm going through a tough time, the book that I happen to be reading or that I pick out at a bookshop will have this sometimes extraordinary resonance. Again, I feel like there's a fatefulness to it. Another example of that is that when I was going through my divorce, I moved to LA for three months, which was an incredibly liberating experience in more ways than one. Mm. And my friend Fran, who I think is possibly the most well-read person I know, was reading this new novelist called Elena Ferranti, (laughs) 
who I, I hadn't really heard of. And she's like, oh, it's a quartet of novels and it's about female friendship. Um, again, the covers were terrible, Yomi, but I'd learned <laughs> from my previous mistakes and um, I read them and they almost made it into this list of five, by the way. Mm. Um, I love those books so much. And again, what Elena Ferrante was writing about was so helpful to me at that moment because not only does... Uh, I think both of the characters actually, well, they both the characters go through failed relationships and I think they both go through failed marriages. And I found it so helpful because the way Elena Ferranti wrote about it was that these women were growing into their agency and they had to end the relationships that weren't good for them, that didn't treat them with the value that they deserved. And it was all about them growing into a consciousness of who they were and their own self-worth and their own power as women. I cannot tell you how helpful that was for me to read. So mm. it definitely, like, books like that really helped me sit with and process emotion. And I think what makes it different from a TV program is that it takes longer to read a book, as it should. And so you really have time to digest and process and imagine. And when you find yourself in the pages of a novel, you feel less alone you feel so understood there are those moments I can remember where it literally takes your breath away where you read a novelist describe something so accurately in precisely the way that you've experienced it and you're like oh I feel so understood so they're definitely important for that reason I have to say I also do a lot of processing by watching The Real Housewives and you (laughs) and I I know share a love of reality television because I've read your piece on Bling Empire and I was like thank you for putting into words how I feel about it (laughs) the very best medicine like honestly if it hadn't been for reality television I don't know if I would have made it to the other side of lockdown to be honest but that's that's a good (laughs) that's a good way of processing things also is writing and I think um, one thing I mean for the myriad of reasons to that you were inspiring and you know incredible another thing that is just you know that I truly admire and have definitely grappled with myself as a journalist is your is how candid you are and you and you write so beautifully but also speak so beautifully about experiences that are very very difficult um and I'm interested in how you essentially do that because I feel that it's only very much in the last I'd say potentially year and a half I've actually gotten to a place where I feel comfortable to to write about certain things not just because I'm you know afraid of sharing them but also because um you know even whilst writing it I remember I was writing about mental health in Slaying Your Lane and literally welling up at like the experience like you know remembrance of certain things I've experienced and it, it can be a very difficult thing to navigate so I'm interested in how you manage to do that and also um, whether I mean I imagine I I could guess the answer, but whether that helps you process um, certain experiences that you've had. Yes, uh, it's it took me a really long time to feel comfortable writing as myself about my own experience. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it took me until after I had been through a divorce and various other things. And I basically had to kind of reinvent my life. So it was only in my late mid mid 30s, I left a staff job on a national newspaper to go freelance. I had no jobs lined up. I'd <laughs> left this marriage. I walked out of my home, found um, a rented flat in Kentish Town that I still adore the memory of to this day, and essentially had to rebuild myself. And that's when I started writing as me. And I think it's because I finally worked out who I was. <laughs> I finally worked out who I was without the kind of scaffolding of all the other stuff that I thought I was meant to have sorted by that time in my life. And the reason I kept on doing it is because the first time I did it, it had such an incredible response. And I felt really seen because I was writing authentically about an experience that had happened to me. When people respond positively to that, it feels very special. It feels like you're being accepted as you. Um, and so I kept on doing it and, and partly because, as you say, it is cathartic for me. I, I feel, you know, in a, in a yoga class when you are in the flow, <laughs> where you sort of slightly forget about the absurdity <laughs> of the whole situation, you're like, oh, that's what breathing means. And you're in a pose. And it feels really good. The only time I feel that in life is when I'm writing and, and I feel 
untangled. So it's a very helpful way for me to work out what I think about something. I'm much better in writing than I am in speech. Mm -hmm. Um, I like having the luxury of time to kind of go over sentences and it's just me and the computer. I find something very cathartic about that. And Mm -hmm. I think also, you know, there's a couple of other things I would say. I, I only really write about things that I believe can connect on a bigger level than just me. I want to be able to help other people who, for whatever reason, very valid reasons, don't feel like shouting about what they've been through. A lot of women, for instance, don't want to tell even their closest family members that they've been through a miscarriage or that they're having IVF. I can do that. Like I I have a platform. I want to do that. And that brings me an enormous amount of... uh, connection with people who then message me and 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 feel reflected in that so that's important to me that it has to be sort of beyond just me and then the other thing is is that I always need time to process things privately so I'm quite weird in that often my first impulse is to write about something and to share it but I know that it makes much more sense for me from a mental health perspective to give myself a few weeks Mm. so I've now had two more miscarriages. I've had three miscarriages in my life. And I now know that when I go through something like that, it's incredibly painful. There's something in me, it's almost like an anger where I'm like, I need to share this and write it and like to just explode the whole thing. And I know I need to, that's a distraction for me. I need to actually sit with it and process. And then in the fullness of time, I can write about it. So that's the other thing that I would say. I know that some very lovely people, including my mother, worry about me making myself too vulnerable and that's what I will say is that I always there is always a kind of moat of protection around me in terms of time Mm -hmm. and I would never write about something that for instance would make other people vulnerable so I'm very open with my other half and 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 people who it will affect so Mm -hmm. those are the those are the necessary boundaries I have in place. We really do appreciate your openness. And I love the fact that, you you know, you sort of said it is about connecting with other people because even um, with certain things that I've written, I've definitely weighed up, like, if this could... It sounds very, like, you know, worthy to say, oh, if this could help just one person, but truly, if it often can help thousands of people, hundreds of people, but really and truly, if it can just help one person that doesn't feel like they have the platform or the ability to speak to certain things, it really can make a world of difference. So we, we appreciate you, Elizabeth. Oh, thank you. That's <laughs> a lovely thing to say. Thank That's you. That's very true. Um, and I really hope you don't mind. I really do want to talk about your other half because I want to talk about Hinge. <laughs> okay, please. Sponsored by Hinge. <laughs> but, because there is a point to this, which is about projection. Because so, you know, it's almost like a running joke between me and um, Elizabeth like anytime we're kind of like should we get back on hinge or like you know well you know elizabeth is the like perfect advert for that platform because obviously you met your other half on hinge and you know i think it it very much as an objective viewer i mean you're both beautiful talented people it's very much a modern day love story and very much like a, a modern day fairy tale but i think it's one of those things where in the same way you know when we talk about failure and stuff and people internalizing that i think obviously when Things when you see things on social media and yeah, you know, especially things that are really beautiful to see, people can also project that despite you being so open about failure and so open about things you've experienced, people can then also not just because of your like lovely relationship, but you're very talented, you're somebody that's achieved a lot. Do you still find that people sort of um essentially project an idea of perfection onto you despite the fact that you've been very open about the difficulties that you've experienced definitely and I have to say I think it's something that female authors get specifically when they write about their own lives yeah there's a sense that you haven't suffered enough it's like (laughs) for you to have a platform you need to have suffered this amount and how much you've suffered isn't enough I've just decided I've decreed and I find it really judgmental and slightly unkind and of course I speak from a place of incredible privilege I'm white I'm middle class I make a living from sitting at a laptop I can't speak with any direct experience as to what it is not to be those things 
but I can seek to investigate that. I can seek to ask other people questions about that who have those experiences. And I can put that somewhere that I hope offers some sort of guidance or practical advice for others who are going through a tough time. That is all I ever want to do. I'm not an expert on failure. I don't put myself out there as someone who like, the, the, the only way that I can possibly talk about this subject is to keep on failing throughout my life because the whole point of how to fail as a philosophy is that we learn from our failures if we want to. And in that way, you can hopefully progress and evolve. Not all failures, but, but the majority of. And I also try to use social media in a way that is upbeat so mm. I won't really put on there the days that I'm just crying for no reason because I don't feel I need to do that I feel like everyone has those days and it it doesn't it doesn't make my heart sing to see other people going through pain mm. so so I'm quite careful about what I share and although obviously I will share my writing about painful episodes of my life but from a, a perspective of hindsight where I've had time to process it so um, I do, yeah, I do find that. And I also understand it because I've been there. I've been at times in my life where it feels like nothing is going to plan. And I've scrolled through Instagram and I've seen those happy couples and I've been like, fuck you. <laughs> and, I, and I get it. And that's a human impulse and that's fine. And if I do that for you, I'm really sorry. And just mute me or unfollow me. And that's okay. Because... No, you've just got me on hinge. That's all you've done for me. Okay. <laughs> you know, like that so I directly blame you for. But other than that, oh, I mean, I love oh. your feed. <laughs> Thank you. I got asked if I was sponsored by Hinge when I posted about our engagement. I was like, I promise you I'm not sponsored. I'm just elated. But you should be. I'm not going to lie. That's the collaboration that we genuinely need to see because I would do anything for a campaign based on it. Oh, I know. I keep trying. I keep being like, come on, sponsor me. Anyway. Um, but no, I think you're like, I get it. I, I sort of get both sides, but mm. ultimately... I can't fall into the trap that I was in in my 20s and early 30s, which was trying to please other people's opinions. I can no longer cut my shape so that it fits in with whatever you want because you're going through something on that particular day. So I just have to be true to myself. And it's such a cliche, but that is absolutely the way I navigate social media and any success that I've been lucky enough to have. I completely, I honestly couldn't agree more. It's exactly how I use Instagram. And it really brings to mind um, the quote from Zadie Smith's um, Intimations. And I've just pulled it up where she says, suffering has an absolution relation to the suffering individual. It cannot be easily mediated by a third term like privilege. And I truly, I thought that line was just, it just really, really, I think, especially during lockdown where, you know, everyone's kind of suffering at most certainly different levels, but, you know, everybody's suffering. Suffer. It even feels quite difficult yeah. to even say it because it feels like, you know, and then, and then, you know, you have to caveat it with different levels of privilege. And I completely understand that. But I just think that quote very much um, speaks to what you've said. Can I just interject? Because I love that quote as well. But there's also a particular bugbear of mine, which is that I don't think in this country we're very good at allowing women to be more than one thing. I if I just stayed in my lane, sorry, forgive the pun given the title of the book, but if I just stayed in a in a box, easy categorize, categorizable, a journalist, fine, that would have been fine. But then I had the temerity to write novels and then I had the temerity to launch a podcast and then I wrote nonfiction. And now I've got this whole other element, which I love and adore and I'm super excited by, but I never planned, of kind of broadcasting. Mm. And I don't, a lot of people don't like that, but a lot of people those same people allow men to do that all the time. Absolutely. Men can have like polyphonic careers. Mm -hmm. And and I think it really frustrates me because in America, there is an absolute assumption that we all have to be multi-hyphenates. And I find that a very liberating attitude. And, and I think that's also where there's just like a granule of resentment about mm -hmm. women being more than one thing. Absolutely. And being more than one thing brilliantly, which you definitely are. So yeah, yeah, I totally Do you agree with that. You know what I, mean? I completely agree with that. I yeah. think that when it comes to women, especially there is a need to prove before you sort of swerve into that lane. So it's very much like what makes you the expert on and then it's, yes. okay, but what makes him the expert on as well? Like if we're going to, if we're going to play that game, then it's very much yeah. on what basis is 
he launching this on on what basis is he do, do you get what I'm saying so no it's definitely something that I feel I feel that we most certainly have to, for lack of a better phrase, pull up receipts to show that we have the right to do something first, um, comparative to men. And it's very, 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 very frustrating. Um, but yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, I'm waiting for a man to tell me I shouldn't be hosting this podcast. I've never hosted- <laughs> Who do what? you think you are? <laughs> Professor Podcast? <laughs> But on to your fourth choice for Bookshelfie, which is Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger by Rebecca Traster, which I think is like great, just segueing on from that last segment. Yes, yeah, so like, seamlessly. quite angry. <laughs> <laughs> Can you um, tell me a bit about the book? With pleasure. I think Rebecca Traster is one of the best essayists working today. And America in particular has such a noble tradition of brilliant kick-ass female essayists, including Gia Tolentino and the other Rebecca Solnit. Anyway, Rebecca Tracer wrote this book called Good and Mad, and I picked it up in an airport and I was flying back from LA and I read the whole thing on the flight. It was like jet fuel being injected into my veins. It was so extraordinary. And it's a reclamation of women's anger, which historically has been subsumed or diverted or suppressed or masked by different emotions such as sadness Mm. and it really revolutionized how I thought about my own anger which for basically my whole life I think I've, I've sort of hidden um and and I think I, you know, someone asked me the other day, like, what happens when you lose your temper? And I was like, oh, I never do. <laughs> I, I, but that's not true. I do lose my temper. I just don't do it visibly. Mm. I put it all internally and it's so unhealthy. And and this book just made me see that anger can be fuel and can be used to change society for the better. And she investigates certain examples of female anger and how they've been portrayed. One of the main things she looked at, or maybe this was, I think she mentioned Lorena Bobbitt. And then mm-hmm. I got inspired by that and talked about Lorena Bobbitt a lot in How to Fail, the book. Lorena Bobbitt infamously cut off her husband's penis because he was being unfaithful to her. And she was portrayed as a figure of derision mm-hmm. and sort of demented, hysterical, harpy level fury. And it was when I actually looked into it, it was so unfair how she was presented. Like he had a history of domestic abuse. There was, you know, it had caused her an incredible, incredible trauma. And Traster also looks at, at Rosa Parks and she, Rosa Parks has traditionally been seen as this nice, quiet little lady who was finally pushed to this act of revolution, which was sitting in a different section of the bus when buses were still segregated in America. Mm-hmm. But actually what Traster taught me is that Rosa Parks had been an agitator up to that point. She was a legit activist. She was already righteously angry about inequality as well as she should have been. And it was really interesting for me to see it in that context because I realised it had never been taught to me like that in school lessons. The fact that Rosa Parks could school her anger and focus it in a way that it would change society forever rather than just being seen as this sweet little old lady who just wanted to sit somewhere else and so that was really interesting to me and it really it really changed my thinking it's interesting you know when you said you went to sort of look into these I mean after reading the book and you read more around Lorena Bobbitt you read more about um, Rosa Parks and just um, filling in the gaps of their stories that we you know, essentially been obscured from, you know, history or just any sort of conversation, really. Um, I feel like if a lot more young women were aware of these narratives and stories, they'd have probably come to feminism earlier, they'd have probably come to certain realisations earlier. So I'm interested in when did you really sort of start reading about feminism and doing that work? I've become more radicalized the older I get. (laughs) There's there's that cliche that you're meant to become more and more right wing. I've done completely the opposite. So I went to secondary school in Northern Ireland. I didn't have a very good time. I ended up getting a scholarship to an all girls school in England. So I went to this all girls school, which was filled with the kind of feminine energy that you're talking about. It felt like a really strong confidence boosting place for me to be. So I was a feminist then without having the language to claim that for myself, I, because I didn't really, I didn't really read into what that meant right then. I just knew that I believed in 
equality between the genders. Um, and then I don't, I like university for me was during like the rise of the ladettes. So all of those kind of radio one DJs who were like, oh, we can go and sink pints of lager with the boys. And it was also a time when women were like doing a lot of stripper lessons for Hindus, being like, we can claim this because it's our sexuality and it's our choice. So that was a very confusing time. And then I think, to be honest, for me, my real awakening came pretty late on. It was the Me Too movement. It was the Me Too movement that made me recategorize my past. And when women started talking out about the harassment and sexual assault that they had experienced and had to deal with in their lives, initially I thought, well, I'm lucky because I've never had that. And then when I saw what people were putting on Twitter, I was like, oh, I mean, I had that, obviously, but I never categorized it as harassment or sexual assault. And so I look back at my past and I just realized that when I got my first job in journalism, I felt lucky that the men had allowed me to be there. And I was determined that I would be as good as and never give a man an opportunity to say I wasn't their equal. And so that meant like working extremely hard and working overtime and saying yes to everything. And that was unequal in and of itself. And, and so it was at, at that point, really, I think I started to just look at the world differently and, and yeah, read a lot of essayists. <laughs> there's another, there's another, I think it's an article in, uh, I think it's the New York Times magazine by Leslie Jameson, where she talks about how Uma Thurman was asked on a red carpet about her experiences with Harvey Weinstein. And she said at that point, I'm not going to speak now. I'm too angry. I need some time to go away and digest and then I'll speak. And I admire that because everyone needs time to process their emotions and speak when they're ready. But also, what does it say about us as a culture that a woman feels ashamed at the idea of speaking her anger when someone has tormented her and abused his power in such an outrageous way? And, I, and so I think I just became a lot more aware of those kind of double standards. Your fifth and final book for this week's bookshelfie is Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. Tell me about when you first read this book. Oh, I first read this book last August, when, um, which is shamefully, again, late. And I have that slight thing. I don't know if you have this. I, I feel like we've got similar energy. When people, when something is a classic or people are like, you have to read or you have to watch Shit's Creek or whatever, I don't want to do that. And it's often, I'm often cutting off my nose to spite my face. And, and their eyes are watching God was one such example. Um, and I didn't read it for ages, even though it was my bookshelf for ages. I took it on holiday because we managed to get a week in Italy in between lockdowns. My then partner, now um, husband, actually, I haven't said that publicly, but we did oh manage to get married. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you, my darling. You're so sweet. Oh, my God. Okay, no, if Hinge don't get in touch now, I'm personally going to... I'm literally going to use the report function to, like, have a go at them because this is insane now. Oh, oh huge congrats, Elizabeth. That's thank you. Lovely. Sorry, You're carry so on. Yeah. We did, like, a micro... We basically just went and, like, signed the documents and we're going to have a, a wedding later, so whatever. Uh, anyway, but we are married. So um, we went on holiday with, um, and his three kids came as well and his mum. So it was like a proper, we were getting all <laughs> our holidays in. We got this video in Italy and I read And Their Eyes Were Watching God by the pool. And I was blown away by it. I was blown away by the poetic nature of Hurston's prose and also the fact that she's very um, earthy as well. It's like a really extraordinary combination. The earthiness and the, and the lyricism together. Uh, she writes in dialect. It's like a kind of full multi-sensory experience to read this book. I'm terrible at remembering plots, even though I only read it a few months ago. But I massively remember feelings that books leave me with. And this was like having the top of my head... Um, like opened like a like a can opener there was this whole new just uh, the way she expresses certain things just really has stayed with me still and it has one of the best I believe metaphors for love that I've ever read in any book and it's spoken by tea cake who so basically 
um, from what I remember. And that Eyes Are Watching God is about Janie Crawford, who is in her 40s and she recounts her life as she remembers it, starting with her sexual awakening. And she goes through um, two unsuccessful marriages. So again, this is like way before its time. I mean, it's a 1937 novel. And eventually she finds true love with with uh, Tea Cake, who is a kind of um, charming, odd job layabout. And Tea Cake describes love as like the sea. It's a moving thing, but still in all, takes its shape from the shore it meets and it's different with every shawl. I was like, yes, oh it's different God. with every shawl. My and Libra so- ass is living. Like, I love love. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, oh my God, this is beautiful. And I'm not going to so- throw you under the bus because I have not watched it. Squeak. All read their eyes are watching. <laughs> so, you know, Fine. you are, like you know, feel a lot better <laughs> because I need to read that now. But yeah, please do oh. carry on. It's so good. And I just, that description of love, it's exactly that. It's like, it stuck with me. And it just so happens that on that holiday, Justin and I got engaged. And so now I always connect that book and that passage with a really beautiful moment of romantic connection in my own life, Mm -hmm. where it felt like, and it feels like, and I know you and I have spoken about this, but I met Justin at a time in my life where, we were both scarred by stuff that had happened. But those scars and that kind of complementary pathology just like made love more beautiful in a way that I'd never experienced. So it was like the sea meeting the shore. And that's why I love that book. Oh my God, if you could see my face. Right, my cheeks are hurting (laughs) from smiling. Okay, I need to get in one more question about this because it's too lovely. I want to know how your view of love is different now to when you were a teenager to Mm. how it's just changed and grown and you know yeah over the years how would you say it's it's differed oh my gosh it's so different and I'm so grateful that it's so different because as a teenager when in my 20s I was looking for someone to complete me so Jerry Maguire has a lot to answer for um and I was also you know I was highly influenced by kind of 1980s rom-coms which always end with the boy and the girl ending up together. And that's that's seen as an entire arc. And you're like, no, actually now looking back, the real arc should be they they decide to get together and then what happens? Um, <laughs> and so I had very traditionally romantic notions of what I was looking for. And I wanted it to be someone who I would be struck by a thunderbolt and it would be so passionate that we couldn't consider but be together and it would just you know there'd be this incredible like raging wild sea of love and all that sort of stuff and what that did was lead me into relationships with narcissists (laughs) 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 who who loved the fact that I was thinking they could complete me um who who really enjoyed the fact that I was a massive people pleaser who just wanted to please them. And if you asked me where I wanted to go for lunch, I'd be like, oh, where do you want to go for lunch? I was that kind of person, which actually makes me feel slightly sick to look back on. And through my life, you know, those relationships I've described have ended for one reason or the other. And I think I also mistook, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? I think I already have. You already have. So if not, I'm sorry. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like, um, I think I mistook emotional fuckwittage for passion. So that thing of like being in a state of constant anxiety, like, will he call? Won't he? Is he going to see me this weekend? Isn't he? How does he feel about me? You can mistake that for a sort of passionate excitement. It is not that. I now realize that true love for me is about feeling safe and secure with someone. Feeling safe and secure being your whole self with someone. And for me, true love started with an instant attraction and it was someone I met on Hinge and I'd been (laughs) on a lot of bad dates. It was an instant attraction, but it wasn't fireworks and kind of, oh, I found the person who's going to make sense of this experience called life. It was two adults meeting as their grown, fully realized selves, being honest with each other. And I, one of the things that I so valued about Justin from the off is that he's an incredible communicator and he's incredible at communicating because he's learned to be that way because mm-hmm. of various things he's been through. And I just realized now that that's 
so wonderful just being able <laughs> to have a conversation that is straightforward and isn't playing games mm-hmm. and my best friend Emma always knew this about me she she always said to me I feel like you go for like flashy unreliable media types and that's what you think you want but actually I think what you need is an unexciting accountant who you'll meet <laughs> And I was like, on him. She told me this in the she told me this in the wake of a breakup. I was like, how that was the most depressing thing I've ever heard. Please don't say that. <laughs> She's like, no, but what I mean is you think you need someone who pays you those compliments. You don't. You need someone who makes you feel so secure in their love. You don't need the compliment. And then I met Justin, and he's very far from a boring accountant, but he is in a sort of fintech like area, and he is really straightforward. And Emma was like, "You see, you found the person." Thank um, you, Emma. I hope you, I hope she's making a speech at the wedding because oh, I mean, she was absolutely on point with that one. She is not only making a speech; she's also like taking the whole ceremony. So oh, good. <laughs> she should walk you up the aisle oh, yeah. for that one. She's absolutely <laughs> spot on. Anyway, that's what love means for me now. Oh my god. I mean, honestly, this is the first episode, so but I'm like, I do not think we're gonna get any anecdote more beautiful than that. Like those, just, honestly, like I'm just genuinely so happy for you, Elizabeth. I know everyone listening will be because it's just, it's just, it's lovely and it's what we all deserve. And I think that like anyone, wherever stage of life they're at, can learn a great deal from that. I love the idea of two fully formed people coming together to not completely just be their whole yeah. self next to each other <laughs> it's like the ski meeting the shore you see exactly. it's like meet each other's needs don't it's not like we're an entire landscape we're looking for an entire landscape to be formed we are well, see, already this is why you're a writer listen to that like, <laughs> this is why you're a writer but can i just say quickly yomi i feel guilty about recommending hinge because i haven't been on it now for like two years <laughs> and dating apps really change very quickly oh it's changed I will, I'll, once this once we finish recording and we finally okay. get a drink post lockdown I will tell you exactly how it's changed okay. I mean I've Hinge heard, is I've ghetto heard. was the number one trend <laughs> the other day like I think two weeks ago Hinge is ghetto was literally trending and it was just people's horror stories and I was like yep seen that in fact seen this exact person actually yep experienced this so yeah like you know that being said I'm not gonna lie as I said you are such a fantastic advert but I still redownload it every few lockdowns so you know who knows (laughs) but yeah before we go I have to ask you um the hardest question of the whole episode which is if you had to choose one book from your list as your favorite which one would it be and why I'm gonna choose the Caslet Chronicles because uh there are four of them which I know is a bit of five of them actually (laughs) I know that's a bit of a cheat, but also because... It most certainly is. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I lose myself in those books and they would be really comforting in a situation where I don't have any other books. So I would choose either the whole set, if I can get them printed in like one book, would that be okay? <laughs> <laughs> or I'll choose the opening one of the Caslet Chronicles. <laughs> you know what? I think I'll, I will allow it. I'll allow you to print the entire thing into one anthology. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you for being you. Thank you for such a wonderful interview. And I'm sorry we've run over slightly, but um, I was having a blast. So I was too. I'm sorry for rambling on, but I just loved it so much. I love you and I love the questions. So much fun. I'm Yomi Adegake, and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, brought to you by Bailey's and produced by Birdline Media. Head to our website, www.womensprizeforfiction.co.uk, where you can discover this year's 16 long-listed books covering both new and well-established writers and a wide range of genres. You definitely want to click subscribe because in our next episode, we will be exploring five excellent books that shape the incredible Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Please rate and review this podcast. It's the easiest way to help spread the word about the female talent you've heard about today. Thanks very much for listening and see you next time.